The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. This episode contains descriptions of sexual violence and abuse against a child, which may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. It's not just my family, but our entire community has just been stunned by this senseless act. And, and uh, everyone is scared. They're, uh, they're on edge. And I think they will be until this Ramirez is caught. Real dangerous. Very dangerous. A real violent person. We need to get him off the streets. This is not human behavior, but something I can only say is evil contained in human form. A creature without a soul. No conscience, no sense of remorse, and no regard for the sanctity of human life. No one we consider to be a part of humanity could act in such a violent and depraved manner. On August 1, 1960, Angel Matarino Resendez was born in Puebla, Mexico. His mother, Virginia, could have never imagined that the baby she held in her arms that day would grow up to become a murderer known as the Railroad Serial Killer. At a young age, Resendez began using the railroad system to cross back and forth to the U.S. from Mexico, where he committed a string of crimes. The tracks would often lead him through breathtaking mountains and long, empty desert plains that were dotted with prickly pear and yucca. However, his merciless and barbaric attacks on the unsuspecting victims he encountered along the way were a stark contrast to the beautiful backdrop of his travels. Angel Matarino Resendez was an opportunist. He would burglarize, rape, and kill people based on where the railway took him and where it stopped. If he wanted somebody's car, he would take it. If someone crossed him with their words, he would kill them. Later, he would say he killed people based on a mission bestowed upon him by God. For almost 30 years, Resendez traveled all over the U.S., committing crime after crime. Resendez would later be linked to 16 murders across the U.S., including Texas, California, Florida, Georgia, Kentucky, and Illinois. Although he claimed to have killed more people, both in the U.S. and Mexico. The question is, how did someone like Angel Resendez become the railroad killer? 
Was he born to be a heartless murderer, or had he been shaped and made into one over time? Join me now as we look back into the history and crimes of Angel Resendez, a man who used the railroad system to rape, steal, and murder unsuspecting victims who happened to cross his path. We'll also investigate the lives of his victims, including the one person to survive an attack by Resendez, who has chosen to use her experience to help other survivors. Angel Matarino Resendez was no stranger to violence. Born into a family where his mother had been both physically abused by her parents and later by her partners, she too began to use physical abuse as a way of disciplining her children. Resendez was small and often victimized as a child growing up, not only beaten by his mother, he was also raped by a man living in their community when he was around eight years old. His uncle also sexually assaulted him. Around the same time, it was reported that he was attacked and gang-raped by a group of children, who later left him bleeding and unconscious after hitting him over the head with a brick. There was no escape for the little boy, who had no way of protecting himself from even those closest to him. His home was not the refuge a child needs or craves growing up, so he ran away. Perhaps thinking the streets of Pueblo would somehow be safer, he drifted and scavenged what he could to survive. Unfortunately, it left him even more susceptible to mistreatment and abuse. Resendez continued to be sexually victimized while he lived on the streets and soon began sniffing glue. While he was a teenager, he sought employment and headed to the U.S. to work as a migrant farmer. It didn't take long for Resendez to start his long list of criminal offenses. As early as age 16, which included burglary and possession of fraudulent documentation. Between the ages of 16 and 19, Angel was caught on three separate occasions entering the U.S. illegally. Before being deported to Mexico, Resendez was held in various juvenile detention facilities and was continuously sexually assaulted by older inmates. Trapped in his own personal hell, Resendez began self-harming and attempted to cut his wrists. Around the age of 19, 
he began showing signs of mental illness, which would later be diagnosed as schizophrenia. Dr. Pablo Stewart, a forensic psychiatrist with a specialty in all phases of capital litigation, as well as an expert in correctional psychiatry, would later evaluate Angel Resendez. He explains some of the early signs and symptoms of schizophrenia. What you first start seeing is people sort of acting bizarrely, meaning keeping to themselves much more than they ever have, keeping very weird sleep-wake cycles, so they're sleeping all day, awake all night, and they'll start to display sort of weird speech patterns where it's hard to follow what they're saying. They often look confused. It looks to the normal person like they're just spacing out. And what really happens is hearing voices, and it's responding to the internal dialogue that they have, and only they are privy to, because you can't hear what their voices are. But then they start getting more bizarre and, and talking about delusional material. And a delusion is a firmly held belief that's not based in reality. A lot of times people write this behavior off because they're using drugs, you know, especially cocaine or methamphetamine, which is very capable of causing the same type of symptoms of schizophrenia. That is all said because a lot of these guys go for a long period of time before they're ever diagnosed. It's unfortunate because the earlier you diagnose someone and begin treatment, the better their overall prognosis. Dr. Pablo Stewart also explains that none of Angel Resendez's early childhood experiences had an influence on the development of his mental illness. Schizophrenia is a genetically determined neuropsychiatric disorder. So if you get hit in the head, you're not going to develop schizophrenia. But if you get hit in the head and have the genetic uh, proclivity for the development of schizophrenia, then the genetics are the strongest. In genetics, we call it incomplete penetrance of the gene. And you can see that in a lot of medical conditions where someone may be mildly diabetic, but if they can control it with diet and exercise, then they don't need to go on and take insulin, for example. But if that person had really poor diet, and was subjected to a lot of stressful situations, maybe the diabetes would really develop much stronger. Very similar to schizophrenia. If a kid is from a good household, who is supported and everything else, even if he has a little bit of genetics in him, he may be able to keep it together. Or that if he does develop schizophrenia, it'll be in a much less severe form. But it's basically a genetic illness. So all these terrible things that happened, they didn't, in the first 20 years of Resendez's life, he was physically abused and sexually assaulted by both family and strangers. The unfortunate circumstances that he was born into, coupled with his slight stature, made him an easy target to be victimized repeatedly by the people he encountered in his life. He began to fear that he was under a spiritual attack. Looking for clues as to why he experienced so much torment in his life, Resendez searched the Book of Revelations for answers. He was quoted saying he thought the book was speaking right to him, like he was the son of an evil creature. 
he then began to believe he had some sort of special connection with God that others didn't. He later also began to feel as though he had special powers, which included the ability to sense evil, the ability to influence world events with his thoughts, and the duty to punish evil people for their sins against God. No matter how many times Resendez was caught, charged, and returned to Mexico, he would always return. Any weaknesses in the databases used at the time for tracking individuals unlawfully entering the U.S. was working to his advantage. As Resendez would appear in various states to commit his crimes, using aliases with no fixed addresses, the authorities had no means of tracking his whereabouts or movements. In August of 1976, Resendez, using his real name, was deported to Mexico from San Antonio, Texas. In September of 76, he was arrested by security guards for trespassing on a Chrysler property in Sterling Heights, Michigan, using the alias Jose Angel Reyes Resendez. He was then turned over to INS and granted voluntary departure. In October of 76, he was apprehended for entry without inspection by the Border Patrol in McAllen, Texas, using the alias Rafael Resendez Ramirez. He was then voluntarily deported to Mexico on the same day. A year later, in September of 1977, he was convicted and incarcerated for destroying private property and leaving the scene of a crime in Corinth, Mississippi using the alias Angel Cano Reyes Resendez. He was voluntarily deported a month later. A year after that, in 1979, he was charged with Grand Theft Auto in Tampa, Florida. He was using the alias Jose Angel Reyes. Charges were subsequently dismissed in lieu of a more serious charge after he broke into the house of a senior citizen in Miami, Florida. He ransacked the home and beat the owner until he was semi-conscious, then stole the victim's car. The 88-year-old man later died, but because prosecutors couldn't prove it was due to his injuries, Angel was never tried for murder. In July of 1979, Resendez was arrested yet again and charged with burglary of a dwelling in Clark County, Kentucky, but was subsequently extradited to Miami, Florida for the previous charges. He was later convicted for aggravated battery, grand theft auto, and burglary, and he was sentenced to 20 years imprisonment. He was paroled after serving only five years and was later deported to Mexico in 1985. Four months after being released from prison, he was convicted of making a false representation of U.S. citizenship using the alias Jose Reyes Resendez. He was sentenced to 18 months in federal prison. In June of 1986, he was apprehended at the Laredo, Texas port of entry, attempting to enter the United States, presenting a fraudulent U.S. voter registration card and birth certificate. Using the alias Jose Angel Reyes Resendez. He was subsequently sentenced to 18 months imprisonment. 
In the ten years following, Resendez was arrested seven more times, being deported to Mexico following time served. Each time he was caught using a different alias. What authorities didn't realize at the time was that while Resendez was committing all these crimes, he was also leaving a trail of victims behind him. Resendez has been called a man with a grudge, confused, hostile, and angry. According to former FBI profiler John Douglas, Resendez was just a bungling crook, very disorganized. Resendez killed more meditatively for something he needed. Alcohol, drugs, a place to hide out, though usually money. He raped, but sex seemed almost secondary. Other criminal profilers have described Resendez as a blitzkrieg killer who stormed homes and killed in a fury before searching the victim's belongings to justify his actions. But despite the disorganized methods of his crimes, the five-foot-six attacker was resourceful, often trusting chance to come across his murder weapons. A sledgehammer, a pickaxe, a large rock, or an antique iron. Evidence would later prove that Resendez would engage in necrophilia with his victims, although he would deny it. Traveling under as many as 30 false names, Resendez was deported 17 times and sentenced to serve jail time 13 times. According to the IDENT database, the Automated Biometric Identification System, in 1998 alone, Resendez was apprehended a total of seven times by the Border Patrol as he attempted to enter the United States illegally from Mexico. Each time, the Border Patrol processed Resendez in IDENT and voluntarily returned him within a few hours to Mexico. IDENT is a DHS biometric system designed to identify immigration violators by locking their identities to their index fingerprints and their facial image. The fingerprints are taken electronically by a one-print finger scanner, and the facial image is taken by a digital camera. After the information is completed, IDENT electronically transmits the two fingerprint images to the IDENT database. Unfortunately, IDENT wasn't deployed until 1994, so many of Resendez's unlawful entries into the U.S. and records of his criminal offenses were scattered throughout other databases. The INS, the CIS, DAX, and NAIL systems. And each of these databases at the time had their own limitations. Adding to the problem, when IDENT was deployed, the INS had not established clear policies on who should be entered into what they referred to as IDENT's Lookout Database, which contained a list of criminals illegally entering the U.S., 
that had been flagged to be arrested and remanded to the proper authorities if apprehended. It's not a simple matter to explain, so we asked former FBI agent Bobby Chacon why the problem appears so complex. My name is Bobby Chacon. I spent 27 years as a special agent of the FBI. My main areas of focus were in New York City first, organized crime, Italian mafia. I moved into Jamaican drug gangs, international drug cartels, which operated in Jamaica and the United States and back and forth, and Canada and the UK. I traveled to all those places searching for Jamaican drug dealers and, and gang members. And then I moved into the world of forensics and spent the second half of my FBI career working forensics, uh, predominantly underwater crime scenes and underwater forensics. The IDENT system was a database started back in the early 90s by the Immigration and Naturalization Service, what we used to call the INS. That has since been folded into the many agencies of DHS. It has had a name change. But in essence, that database was limited biometric and biographical data from people coming from outside the United States entering into the United States. So it was an administrative function for our government to keep track of these people and the administrative processes that they were going to then have to, you know, abide by to stay in the country. Whether or not they were going to go for a green card, that's PRA, the Permanent Resident Alien Program, or whether they were going to ultimately try to get citizenship. So it's an administrative database that the government uses to track people. Now, during that time when that was stood up in the early 90s, I was working narcotics and mainly focused on Jamaican organized crime coming out of Jamaica. And so I dealt with a lot of people who were in the country illegally committing crimes. And so we had an INS agent assigned to our task force. And one of the things I would do, I would ask him to query their databases, and he would take the information, any limited information that I had developed on the street through informants or surveillance or things like that, and he would go over across the street to the INS office and query both IDENT and some of their other databases. But there would be several layers of bureaucracy that he would have to get approvals from because I didn't have direct access to their system. Because traditionally in the United States, we have this concern for privacy rights and for civil liberties where we don't want this huge government database that has everybody's information and all your information accessible by anybody in the government. That kind of thing you know, when it's all in one place, can be subject to misuse. And so we've always been resistant to these kind of catch-all databases, one place where everything's known, everybody in the government can go to, particularly law enforcement, because, you know, sometimes it's an invasion of privacy. And sometimes if you set up the system that way, people that you're asking to voluntarily submit their information into a system like that can be somewhat reluctant to do so because they don't know who's going to be able to access that. If they know it's only INS and it's only for immigration purposes, that's one thing. But if you say, well, the FBI and the DEA and the CIA is all going to have access to this, then we may have what's called a chilling effect and you may have people that somewhat become reluctant. And so your data doesn't become as comprehensive as you want it to be because people aren't giving it. Traditionally, everybody's had different databases. Well, after 9-11, when it was clear that the U.S. government didn't connect some of the dots it could have and possibly prevented or at least obstructed some of the 9-11 attacks, some of those databases and some of those agencies, the FBI, the CIA, the DEA, are working much closer together and we've given each other access to the databases. But there is still a historical reluctance on 
the part of people in the U.S. to actually develop some kind of catch-all database that everybody has access to. Now, believe me, as a law enforcement officer, I would have loved to been able to sit down, like in the movies, and one person at a keyboard can type a few keys and find out anything about anything, right? That would have made my life a lot easier. But I also know the concern, and I agree with the concern, that that kind of access, that those kind of databases can be subject to corruption and misuse and, and people that are looking to access them for less than right purposes. And when people say they see a crime committed, maybe the government, quote unquote, the government should have known, or cases where one agency of the government knows something that the other one didn't, and the one that didn't know that information was responsible for catching the person they didn't catch. And they say, well, why isn't the government talking to each other? Well, it's a lot of times born out of that concern that, you know, we don't want one person that's working for the government anywhere to know everything the government knows everywhere. Angel would later admit that he had often entered houses that seemed to radiate evil on at least 20 occasions. He confessed that he had entered houses while the occupants lay sleeping, but left without acting. What makes this so scary, said Drew Carter, a former Texas Ranger, is that these victims were in their own beds behind locked doors. Every one of these victims was like the average citizen, and therefore, the average citizen could view themselves as victims. This guy was the boogeyman. John Douglas described what appeared to be the killer's simple but deadly agenda. When he hitches a ride on a freight train, he doesn't necessarily know where the train is going, but when he gets off, Having background as a burglar, he's able to scope out the area, do a little surveillance, make sure he breaks into the right house where there won't be anyone to give him a run for his money. He can enter a home complete with cutting glass and reaching in and undoing the locks. Interestingly, most of Resendez's victims were found covered with a blanket which seemed to suggest he had the ability to feel a sense of shame or remorse. We asked Dr. Pablo Stewart why Angel may have progressed from committing petty crimes to indiscriminately killing people all over the country. What I would recommend is not trying to make Lyme a reason out of his crime, okay? By the time I saw him, he was just out of his gourd. He was just delusional. To try to look back at his crimes and try to understand the basis of what he was doing, you're not going to get anywhere, in my opinion. He was so crazy. Okay? He's not like Jeffrey Dahmer who's planning things and, you know, stalking young boys and doing a bunch of other stuff like this. Or like a serial killer who's not psychotic. This guy was just he was one of the more crazy people I've ever dealt with. 
Angel's first two known victims were both transients, a man and a woman who were never reported missing after Resendez killed them. The woman was not identified, and the man's body was never found. Their murders were only solved because Angel later confessed to them many years later. Resendez's reason for killing them? The woman disrespected him, and he believed the man was involved with black magic. He dumped the woman's body in an abandoned farmhouse and put the man's body in a creek somewhere located between San Antonio and Uvalde. In 1991, Angel killed his third victim, a young man by the name of Michael White, who was 22 years old. He bludgeoned him with a brick, later confessing it was because Michael was a homosexual. It wasn't until 1997, however, that Resendez would begin to draw attention to the victims who lay in his wake. Two young lovers who unfortunately crossed Angel's path and were in the wrong place at the wrong time. In 1995, Jesse Howell was an 18-year-old living in a small suburb of Illinois, and he began to seek autonomy from his mother and stepfather. Jesse, characterized as being a bit of a rebel, often butted heads with his stepfather, and their arguments had the tendency to erupt into physical altercations. High school friend Justin Canary, with whom he had just attended a local church youth group, recalls Jesse's biological father passing away when he was younger and wondered if that may have contributed to some of his friend's behavior. The average teenage kind of partier, I guess, like to sneak beers and, you know, smoke marijuana. You know, he was kind of a rebellious, anti-authority individual as well. So, uh, yeah, he likes uh, classic rock and roll music, like The Doors, I remember being like his favorite band. Yeah, Led Zeppelin, that kind of stuff. Jesse was a highly intelligent individual. I mean, computers were a semi-new thing at the time, you know, at least being in every home, and he was really in, into computers. He was probably my best friend at the time. Jesse had confided in Justin about his thoughts of running away, and the Canary family, who had fostered children in the past, decided to offer Jesse a place to stay. After living with the Canary family for about a year, he was asked to leave after violating house rules, which included no underage drinking. Justin remembers Jesse living out of a white Dodge Duster he had bought and talking about plans to eventually drive to Florida to live with his grandmother. Around the same time Jesse was devising his plan to head to Florida, he met a 16-year-old girl by the name of Wendy Von Huben, who had recently moved to the area. Wendy and Jesse's relationship developed quickly, and it didn't take long before the two were talking about running away together. Jesse proposed to Wendy and promised if she left Illinois with him, he would show her the world. So on February 22, 1997, Wendy told her parents she'd be staying at a friend's house that night, but secretly had plans to take off with Jesse. They could never have imagined that that would be the last time they would see their daughter alive. 
Jesse's plan to flee to Florida with the love of his life had one glitch. He had recently had his license suspended for driving without insurance. However, his determination to pursue his budding new romance with Wendy ignited the idea for a plan B. Jesse decided to ask another friend who was legally able to drive to tag along for the road trip along with his girlfriend. Only a few weeks into their road trip, Jesse and Wendy faced their first setback. The two friends who had joined them had reportedly grown tired of hearing the couple frequently squabbling and decided to abandon both Jesse and Wendy at a truck stop. The young couple were now left stranded more than 1,000 miles away from home. We asked Justin if this description of Wendy and Jesse arguing seemed characteristic of the interactions he had witnessed between the couple. I know how couples can fight. I wouldn't say that's with a common trend in their relationship, I'd have to say. They were a very much in love young couple. Just stupidly teenager love sort of thing, you know what I mean? They got along very well. When Justin first heard that Jesse and Wendy had disappeared, he wasn't overly concerned or even surprised. He had heard his friend often talk about running away to Florida, and it seemed to make sense that he would take his girlfriend with him. Justin also knew how resourceful his friend could be, even without a car. Justin was very resourceful. He had been a homeless person a couple times, so he, he knows you know tricks and everything like that. He probably would have either hitchhiked or, you know, like he actually ended up doing hopping, hopping the train to get somewhere. As resourceful as Jesse could be, the couple eventually ran out of money and reportedly began living under a bridge near Dade County, Florida. It seems that at some point, Wendy decided it was probably best for the two of them to head back home. She called her parents from a shelter, asking them to send her $200 so she and Jesse could get a bus ride home. Although the next chain of events is not entirely known, we do know that Jesse and Wendy received the money transfer that was wired to them by Wendy's parents. It is also known that a few hours after receiving the wire transfer, Jesse called his parents as well and told them they were headed back. Sadly, two days after Jesse made the call to his parents, his body was found bludgeoned to death near the railroad tracks in Marion County, Florida, on March 23, 1997. The couple hadn't purchased the bus tickets and instead had planned to hop on a rail car. Inside Jesse's wallet, detectives found some cash and in the dirt beside him, a half-smoked cigarette. Also found nearby was the murder weapon. A bloodied brass coupling used to link one rail car to another. But there was no sign of Wendy. Justin recalls the first time he heard about what happened to his friend. We got a phone call from the pastor 
he called my house and I remember my sister answering the phone and she was the one who ended up telling me. I was really mad at first and then sad. It's really a mixed emotion sort of thing like that. It really messed me up being a young person. It didn't help me or hurt me more putting a face to the person who killed him because I guess I didn't really see him as a person. I just kind of saw him as a hollow shell that killed people. Although Jesse's wallet had been found, there was no identification. Marion County detectives had no idea who their John Doe was. However, they did find a receipt for a money transfer for the amount of $200 in his pocket. The receipt showed the amount had been transferred from Illinois to Florida, but it only had Wendy's first name on it. Police eventually were able to trace the wire receipt back to its place of origin and called the Woodstock, Illinois Police Department to inform them of their John Doe and the mysterious wire transfer receipt they had found inside his pocket. Local police had been investigating the disappearance of Jesse Howell and Wendy Von Huben for over a month and feared the worst. After sending Jesse Howell's fingerprints and photograph to detectives in Marion County, the John Doe was positively identified as Jesse. But Jesse's murder was far from being solved. There was no motive, no suspects, and they had no idea where Wendy was. On June 4, 1997, Wendy's parents grew hopeful that their missing daughter might still be alive after receiving a phone call from someone claiming to be her. Police tracked the call back to a gas station close to where the Von Hubens used to live. After reviewing the security footage, it appeared that a young girl who looked similar to Wendy had been there. After showing the footage to Wendy's parents, they too agreed that the girl looked just like their daughter. Police further subpoenaed phone records and unfortunately discovered that the original call had come from a different gas station two miles down the road. At the other gas station, they found a flyer posted with the Von Huben's home telephone number and a photo of missing Wendy. Disturbingly, it turned out that the phone call they had received had been a cruel prank. Both Jesse and Wendy's families and their community were in shock and mourned the fact that Jesse had been brutally murdered and Wendy was still missing. Amy 
Angel Resendez continued hopping from railcar to railcar, stowing away on the next freight train to come his way. Burglarizing, terrorizing, and slaying unsuspecting victims in his delusional campaign against evil. Join us for part two, where we will uncover what happened to Jesse Howell and where Wendy Von Huben had disappeared to. We'll also reveal how Angel Resendez finally made it onto the FBI's top 10 most wanted list. And when they realized the fact that a serial killer was at large, using the railway system as his primary mode of transportation. I'd like to thank the following new Patreon supporters, Lori M., Matt H., and Denise S. And now I would like to introduce two podcasts, Extraordinary Stories. Hey, how are you? Let me ask you this. Do you like your stories to be extraordinary? If you do, then welcome to Extraordinary Stories podcast. Do you like true crime? The details, the emotion, the facts, the real voices of people. Extraordinary Stories podcast is a place to hear stories of death, love, sex, murder, the unbelievable, the insane, the weird, the wonderful. If you want to think laugh, cry and scream, then get into Extraordinary Stories podcast. It's a place to have real feelings. And just a final warning, the stories are told in a thick (laughs) Scottish accent. Extraordinary Stories podcast. And True Crime Sweden. Hi, this is Pernilla from the True Crime Sweden podcast. If you thought Sweden was all about IKEA and Swedish meatballs, you are in for a big surprise. We do have our fair share of crimes in Sweden too, and I'm here to tell you all about them. I bring up all sorts of true crime cases, and by listening, you get to learn a little bit about how the legal system works in another country. For example, I did an episode about the case that created the Stockholm Syndrome. You've probably heard about the Stockholm Syndrome, but do you know the case behind it? Well, besides talking about true crime, 
I end each episode with a little fun fact about Sweden. Something that is really appreciated by my listeners. And maybe I should add that my podcast is of course in English. If you think this sounds interesting, give it a try by searching for True Crime Sweden on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast at. I hope to see you. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and all other major podcast apps. You can find us on Facebook by searching The Minds of Madness and on Twitter using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track Feel the Madness is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerarecords.com.au slash G-E